How have our psychology and cognitive biases altered the course of human history? What would you do if you had to rebuild our world from scratch? Louis Darnell is an author, researcher, and he holds the professorship in science communication at the University of Westminster. He researches astrobiology and the search for microbial life on Mars. He also works as a scientific consultant for the media and has appeared in numerous TV documentaries and radio shows. Dr. Darnell has won several awards for his science writing and outreach work. He has published five books, The Knowledge, Origins, How the Earth Made Us, and Being Human, How Our Biology Shaped World History, are the ones we discuss today. Louis Darnell? Welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I've been looking forward to this chat with you. So your book, Being Human, How Our Biology Shaped World History, how did that grow out of your previous two books, Origins and The Knowledge? Yeah, so what I've tried to do with these three books is that, in my mind at least, they form some kind of triptych. So not necessarily like a trilogy of books. You don't have to have read them all for the next one to make sense. You don't have to read them in order. But the three of them all hang together in taking the same perspective on, on world history, on human history. And what I did with the first of these, with, with the knowledge, was looking at how human ingenuity and our resourcefulness and our inventiveness has enabled us to construct the world that we live in today and that we just take for granted. So it's about human ingenuity. And then the next book, Origins, was about how features of the world itself that we live on, features of planet Earth, whether that is the churning of the atmosphere high above our heads or the movement of plate tectonics or where different mineral resources or metal ores could be found. I explored how the sort of geography and geology of our planet itself has had a defining role in the playing out of human history. And what I've done with the third of these now, with being human, is kept that same sort of broad brushstroke, big history type approach, but now looked and explored at how intrinsic features of us as an animal, as a species, how they have been really important in the thousands and hundreds of years of recent human history. So everything from our psychology and cognitive biases and the way that we think, to our bodies, our anatomy, our physiology, and then right down to our genetics and particular mutations, particular spelling mistakes in our DNA. How all of those intrinsic aspects of us as humanity, our humanness, have explored how they've been really important through the playing out of, of human history. So three different stories, but all coming together to show different perspectives on the same grand tapestry of the thousands of years of, of human civilization and then history. Indeed. And then going back to the knowledge, all three books are really apt, but we think about, you know, the development of AI and these large language mm. models and the just transition that we have to make. If we're going to be climate ready, you know, looking forward to 2050. You pose this question, trying to prepare us for a time when civilizations are destroyed, possibly, and our world is no longer the same. Yes. Yeah, so the conceit, the, the sort of tongue in cheek joke, if you like, behind the first of these books, behind the knowledge was that you and I and our community of post-apocalyptic survivors have survived the end of the world as we know it, and we're scratching our heads and trying to work out how we can go about recovering and rebuilding everything that we take for granted. So it's not a prepper book, it's not a survivalist book, but it's about how you could go about constructing from the ground up the entirety of civilization. It's a kind of DIY guide to civilization itself. And each of the chapters look at different areas of our capability, which have been hugely important in our story of development and progression over thousands of years, whether that's simple chemistry or technologies for communication or for transport or for energy, which you've just linked at, is, is clearly a huge part behind what drives and sustains civilization. The conceit is, is that the single book you don't press into your hands as you 
flick through the rubble of a post-apocalyptic wasteland. But at the end of the day, it's a science book. I'm a scientist. I'm not a prepper. I'm not a survivalist. But I thought that this notion of the loss of everything that we take for granted in our modern everyday lives was a really good way of being able to peer behind the scenes and see how it works in the first place. See what we do take for granted. See where all this stuff comes from and how it's made and how it's transported around the world and these global interconnected production and transport networks. And clearly a lot of that is behind the current challenges and problems we're facing with over-resource utilisation, with environmental degradation, with emissions of greenhouse gases from the energy that we're producing. So there's sort of two sides of the same coin, as it were. So it could be dystopian read that way, but I see it as utopian because it makes us reconsider these systems and institutions and how might we might redesign because basically we're being told all the time that we, we're going to have to make these tough decisions and it's about letting go of what we've built and rebuilding from scratch. You say in the book, living in the modern world, we've become disconnected from the basic processes that support our lives. And I would say that living our lives through screens for the past 20 plus years have made many of us become disconnected from ourselves. I would heartily agree with that. And that that was the mirror I was trying to hold up to the way we live. And by exploring that, allow the reader to question some of those aspects of our lives. You know, the things that we take for granted without thinking twice about where does it come from? And could it be done a different way? You know, is there a different way of building our society through the lens of starting from scratch and being forced to rebuild society? Are there greener ways of doing what we already do? And therefore, where, where does our future lie? And how is AI accelerating, in your view, this disconnection? And could you expand upon its challenges and opportunities? I mean, some people call it like a, a new biological form. Like any other new technology, AI is a double-edged sword. It promises both enormous potential and capability from proving human life by, just to pick a couple of examples off the top of my head, to help with medical diagnosis and catching cancer early or removing the lot of tedium and repetitive nature of, of, of many jobs. It can make a lot of great contributions to human society and the way we live, but it could also disrupt in a very negative way our current way of life. And as with any technology, which of those two paths we choose comes down to the decisions we make, you know, that the policies that are put in place on a national level, which are informed by the public discussion, and that's everything from podcasts like these to, you know, blog posts and news on TV and radio. AI is neither inherently good nor inherently bad. Like any other technology, it's just a way of doing something. And it's how we control that technology by making active decisions about what we will allow and not allow be the pathway to the future. But I think there's been a lot of doomsday talk in recent months about artificial general intelligences and, you know, sort of the Terminator type outcome. And, I, you know, as an extreme outlier, it's certainly not impossible, but I don't personally believe that is a probable outcome from where we are now. Indeed, but just a need for governance in general. And, yeah, and it increases in general this kind of electronic fog that we live in, where we're all fighting for eyeballs. Do you think with that science and climate communication that we need to get more effective? And I know that you're also involved in this. So what are some of the ways you and and make important issues relatable and memorable to audiences. So I'm a research scientist at the University of Westminster here in London, and my research is in astrobiology and looking at the possibility of life on other planets. So a lot of what I do is thinking about Mars and ultra-hardy bacterial-like life forms that could survive from the very harsh environment of the Martian surface. And if Martian microbes are there, how could we go about detecting them with, with experiments and rovers and Mars probes? 
But alongside all that scientific research and working in my lab and supporting PhD students in my research group, I do a lot of this kind of thing, of science communication, of telling the general public about things that I get passionate about and that I think are important and, and think are interesting and exciting. And that's everything from writing the books to you know, doing podcasts and blogging and appearing on news and, and talking about all these different aspects of, of science and technology and how they impact on our lives. So my post at Westminster is the professorship of science communication and it's split pretty neatly 50 50 between doing the science doing the research and disseminating or communicating or sort of broadcasting the specifics of my research but also science and technology in general yes and talking about uh, your studies on mars relate back to earth's own biological and historical development you've said in the past that without industrial scale nitrogen synthesis we couldn't grow enough food to support the world's present population and so by 2050, there'll be another three and a half billion people on the planet. So obviously we need more food and we, at the same time, you know, there's movements for regenerative agriculture. So could you just expand a little bit more on that? Yeah. So one of the most profound technological developments in recent history was the invention of the harbour process. It's an effective way of mining the atmosphere itself. I think people are familiar with mining underground to get metals, which are useful. The harbour process is a chemical process allowing us to mine the air that we breathe. Because the air is absolutely stuff-packed full of nitrogen, which in the atmosphere is in a relatively unreactive form, but nitrogen is absolutely fundamental to plant growth and then also you know, healthy development of, of the human body. So when you're fertilizing a field, you're trying to put nitrogen into the soil. And before the early 1900s, fertilizer was found in you know horse manure, or scraping off guano, scraping off bird poo from isolated islands in the South Atlantic and South Pacific. And then this chemical process was discovered that allowed us to artificially synthesize basically as much fertilizer as we needed. And, and it saw huge improvements in agricultural productivity. It is absolutely behind all the billions of people around the world and all those mouths that need to be fed. But historically and incidentally, the harbor process was also behind a very effective way of making explosives and weaponry. So again, as with any technology, always two sides to it. It is neither inherently positive nor negative. It's what applications you choose to put that understanding. And incidentally, on Mars, one of the key nutrients or key elements which seems to be in critically short supply is nitrogen. It seems to have blown away with the atmosphere when Mars suffered a, a kind of environmental catastrophe, an environmental collapse early in its history. So though a lot of people are talking about sending human missions to Mars and establishing a Mars base, and colonies and growing human populations, one thing that's going to be limiting that is the availability of nitrogen for fertilizing plants we'd want to grow in inflatable greenhouses on Mars and feeding our astronauts there. So we might need to be taking tanks of nitrogen, probably in the form of ammonia or something like that, on our missions to Mars because it is such a critical element in supporting our lives. It's very intriguing with these missions to Mars, but the fact that you have to manufacture soil, which is a miracle, as we know, like a handful of soil, more organisms than mm. humans on the planet. So, I mean, how feasible is that really? Well, feasible in principle, but practically very, very difficult. And there have been a number of claims in recent years by organizations like Mars One, or more recently by Elon Musk, that will have so many thousands of human colonists on Mars by 2030-something. And those are just not technologically feasible. There are a lot of very big problems we need to be able to solve reliably so we don't end up delivering a bunch of corpses 
to Mars. We can send humans there and be confident we can keep them alive to bring them back again or for that colony to get a stable footing. And there are a number of dangers in outer space and traveling the radiation in outer space, which is one of the things that, that I specialize in, the cosmic rays, to do with the dangers of microgravity and floating around inside your spaceship, as well as the problems you'd encounter when you arrive at Mars, that everything you need to survive, you have to be able to generate and endlessly recycle yourself. You know, you can't even take it for granted being able to breathe the air on Mars like you can do on the South Pole, for example. You have to generate your own oxygen to breathe. You have to recycle your own drinking water from your own urine to be able to drink. You have to grow your own food like a space farmer, which is why we start encountering problems like the lack of nitrogen and having to create sort of artificial soils from the regolith on Mars, which is one of the areas that I've got my students working on at the moment. So in some of the problems on Earth in terms of agricultural productivity and soil degradation are similar to the sort of challenges and problems we need to solve for sending human astronauts to the red planet, to Mars. So indeed, let's just look after this soil that we have on our planet. And I don't know if sometimes these are exaggerated, but that we're losing soil fertility to the degree of 0.3% a year. So like in 100 years, that's 30% of soil fertility, which is lost. Yeah, exactly. It is certainly concerning. It is one of the many severe problems we are facing at the moment that we need to find solutions to. Otherwise, things might collapse. Otherwise, we might be facing sort of societal collapse, civilization collapse type scenarios that I moot in the knowledge. But they are genuine risks. You know, we, we are not infallible as, as a society, as a civilization. Indeed. And the linkage to that, to certain um, diseases founded on inflammation like cancers due to our poor diets. Yeah, there are very close links between what we eat and our overall lifestyle and overall healthiness, and as well as specific diseases. It is all connected. And so you've written about this, the impact of diseases on history. Yeah, in the latest book, In Being Human, I explore over two chapters, in fact, the profound influences of disease on the playing out of history. So you can think of a disease as the way that vulnerabilities in the human immune system end up having effects on survival ultimately, but then how society recovers and develops. And I look at both endemic diseases, which affect a population over very long periods of time and have a sort of a background effect, but then the much more rapid and almost sort of explosive effect of epidemics or pandemics. And clearly we, as a world, we've all just come through a global pandemic with coronavirus. And there have been many pandemics through history that affected very large regions around the world. Um, and I explored in, in the chapters of being human what some of the repercussions of those are, whether that was the Spanish influenza after the end of the First World War, or some of the epidemics that ripped across the Americas after contact was first made uh, with European explorers, as well as some of the um, epidemics much earlier in history that hit places like Athens and Rome. So cities turn out to be very good places for diseases to spread because you have high concentrations of people all crammed together and you know, breathing in each other's faces, sharing water supplies, and therefore providing the, the perfect breeding grounds for, for diseases to spread from, from person to person. And before we go into the influence of geography, as you've written on uh, social political structures, as you mentioned in Greece, I, just going into the pandemic, of course, with COVID, I mean, we see that coming out now in the Yellowstone Park, there's this zombie deer's disease. And I don't want to think about what that would be like <laughs> if that crosses the barrier into humans. You know, I've not heard about that now, but that is going to be the first thing I'm Googling as soon as we come off this podcast. I will be looking up zombie deers. That sounds absolutely fascinating. You mentioned Greece, the influence of geography on social political structures. 
Yeah, in the second book in this triptych, Origins, where I look at features of the planet itself, features of the ground we walk on or the atmosphere high above our heads. And clearly geography has been very, very important in the fates of different city-states or nations or even entire empires to do with you know, how well you can defend your borders or what opportunities the geography provides for you in terms of transport by river or natural resources, whether that is timber or you know, metal ores within your limits, within your boundaries. And one particular story that hints out there is Greece. And one argument that's been put forward, which I, you know, I write about, I report upon in Origins, is that democracy arose in Greece because the city-states are relatively isolated from each other by quite a rugged mountainous terrain. And that's a direct consequence of plate tectonics and Africa riding north and crashing into Europe and crumpling up the coastline of the northern Med. Um, so the hilly mountainous Greek landscape is a direct consequence of, of plate tectonics. And it means that certain military technologies, which are very, very popular in the Levant, for example, like the chariot, just don't work in Greece. So it's all about infantry and foot soldiers, and each man in the phalanx protecting the man on his side with the shield. So the argument is that this idea of every man helping everyone else in the phalanx and the sort of military unit then bled through into society in general, and this idea of, of democracy emerging in, in Athens, earliest in, in Greece. So what are your reflections on how Britain has influenced your thinking about the world, the language in which you were born in, the culture? Oh, so, I mean, continuing the theme, Britain is something of an oddity within Europe, certainly at least, in being a, a large island nation state. And that has been hugely influential in, in British history. And it's one of the stories I tell in Origins about, well, effectively the original Brexit. What was it that created the British Isles as an island around half a million years ago? And this was during the last ice age. And a mega flood effectively gouged out the English Channel and severed Britain from the rest of Europe. And that has been hugely influential through the, the hundreds and thousands of years of, of the history of the British Isles, that sort of defensibility and slight isolation from the rest of the continent. But as a language, English is the only language that I speak. I'm, I'm trying to learn French as quickly as I can at the moment. So my wife, Davina, is, is half French. We're raising our baby, Sebastian. We're raising him bilingually, which means I'm trying to keep ahead of him in learning French. But English is the only language that I'm fluent in. So I guess I've got nothing to compare it to. But, but I understand it said that English can be a wonderfully expressive language because it's just a hodgepodge of so many different languages all combined together. English has, has been described as not one language, but three languages all stood on each other's shoulders underneath one trench coat. You know, it's, it's sort of three languages masquerading as one. A lot of sort of nuance and subtlety communicated quite readily in English because there are often many, many synonyms or variants of a word that you can choose each with a slightly different nuance behind it. And what I find quite interesting is when I'm reading translations of my book in French or in Spanish, which I've got a, a spattering of an understanding in, and it just seems a bit simpler in terms of the way that the sentences are phrased, is, is my impression. That might be grossly, grossly misguided, I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. Now, simpler... Through simplicity sometimes comes clarity. So I would just... Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and uh, because we've been having conversations about language recently with uh, Lakota radio broadcaster Tiakasin Ghost Horse, and he made me just re-reflect on the way in which Tiakasin language or English language or certain Western languages are languages of domination and ownership, and then the Lakota language, it's all about relationship. It's just like a humble language, not about labeling and, you know, nouns and ownership. And... 
I can't imagine what your books would be translated into that language. I tried to reorient my thinking around this language of the earth, and it's almost impossible. No, it's interesting. I've, I've, I've heard very similar things said about so Far East languages, so such as Chinese, for example, which the language I, I understand tends to be much more about verbs and what things do, whereas European languages and English tend to be much more about nouns. And people have drawn links between the individualism of English and American society and the much more collective society or sort of collective mentality of, of China, which is supposedly linked, linked to its language. Um, and, you know, clearly there are, there are deep links between society and individuals and language and how we communicate with each other and therefore the mindsets that you work within, you operate within. So as you're writing these books, and I don't know the age of your son, but in, in some ways there are, you know, books for future generations of what's essential, what we want to share on to the next generation. I mean, what were your reflections on that as you were writing? So Sebastian, or Seb as we call him, is almost two. So his relationship with books at the moment is sitting on either my lap or, or Davina's lap and being read, you know, children's stories, lots of bright pictures and, and pointing at things. One of the books I have written is a children's book, which, which I wrote a couple of years before Sebi was born. It's called My Tourist Guide to the Solar System and Beyond. And it's a Dorling Kinsley book. So it's very colourfully illustrated, lots of pictures, lots of graphics. And it uses the idea of taking a holiday in outer space and where you would most want to go to and what souvenirs you'd want to keep and what photographs you want to take that you, you can only get in that place in the solar system and nowhere else. This uses that sort of imaginative door in order to explore uh, about planetary science in general. So it uses creativity and imagination to explore some of the facts and figures and, and reality of, of our solar system. So, you know, there's obviously very different approaches you take to writing for children as you do for writing for adults, which most of my books have. But I think the common feature between all of them is just engaging the fascination that we all have with, with things we don't know yet. You know, we are naturally very inquisitive and curious and explorative species. And it's the, the, the trick, I think, in writing nonfiction is to trigger that innate inquisitiveness and play with it as you're telling stories ultimately, at the end of the day. You know, the stories might be about historical events, they might be about how particular technology works, but at the end of the day, it's a story about people and our interactions with these things. We are natural-born storytellers, and that's how we interact with each other and engage with new material. Based on your research in both astrobiology and the historical impact of our environment on human development, do you have any insights into what the next major evolutionary societal shift for humanity might be? So I try to avoid making predictions as far as possible because they invariably end up being wrong. But we've hinted already and touched upon already about the challenges that are facing our society at the moment with things like climate change and the emission of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And what I discuss in Origins is that this is effectively the unintended consequence of a solution that we found in the late 1600s and early 1700s to a fundamental problem that society was facing at the time which is we were running out of energy. And, and certainly in Britain and Northern Europe, to a lesser extent, we were coppicing woodland. We were generating as much timber as we could to burn, to fuel our society, whether that was baking bread or making glass or smelting metals and making tools. We were basically starting to starve for energy. We had no more timber we could access. And it's when we realized we could dig underground for ancient fossilized woodland which is basically what coal is. It is wood from about 300 million years ago. Do we realize we had this, what at the time appeared to be a, a abundant, if not near infinite supply of energy, which we could fuel our society on. And it's 
it acted almost like you know a, a genie being released from the, the magic oil lamp and granting the wish that society was begging for but always with genies wishes and when they grant them there's always a bit of a twist in it and unintended consequence of burning all that coal and then oil as we know was a re release of the carbon dioxide and, and changing our atmosphere and, and, and warming the planet so it's, it's a problem born out of our own ingenuity and resourcefulness and i'm confident that we will find the solution out of our own ingenuity and resourcefulness and part of the solution we have already it's you know it's renewable sources like solar power hydroelectric power nuclear fusion when we crack that as a technology is going to be a huge part of the energy mix in the future because it can be made you can generate electricity generate energy very cleanly and efficiently but you're right we, we have some big changes big alterations we need to be making to our everyday lives right now simply just to reduce the amount of stuff that we use and the number of flights that we take and the amount of meat that we eat i, I don't think this is a new message for people to be hearing, but it does remain an uncomfortable message for us to be taking on board and acting upon. You have to take short-term sacrifices in your lifestyle and your comfort and your enjoyment for a longer-term benefit, which is a bit more nebulous and, and a bit more diffuse. I on a personal level, and then of course, I'm looking towards policymakers to make that wide-ranging change. I'm curious about the possibility of 24-hour solar power from outer space. Yeah, so space exploration has historically, has traditionally been the preserve of superpowers. It's been the United States against the USSR or Russia, basically through the Cold War, facing off against each other by showing off how big their missiles are, effectively. A, a rocket that can take an astronaut into space is a very similar technology to a rocket that can lob a nuclear weapon between continents. So the original space race was a race and a, and a contest between superpowers. What we're seeing now, however, is the opening up of space exploration to not just superpowers, but individual nations. So India has been making huge strides, to give one example, in exploring outer space and landing missions on the moon, but even private corporations. So corporations like SpaceX or a number of others which have been opening up space and, and delivering the technological advantages such as, you know, fast internet around the world. But the next stages in, in space exploration are going to be all about what advantages they can deliver to the Earth, how, how space can be made to pay for itself effectively rather than being a very expensive sink for superpowers to be facing off against each other. And energy generation may well form part of that mix. People over recent decades have been talking about huge solar rays that you know are never obscured by cloud, never obscured by night and day because they're in space and sending that power back to the Earth. There's been other slightly more sci-fi discussion about mining the surface of the moon for helium-3, which is an isotope that may end up being very important for nuclear fusion. So there's a lot of speculation at the moment about how space can start providing resources for us on the Earth and not just be the preserve of superpowers or, or tech bros basically showing off to each other. Yeah, but it's so like a new great game and none of us really see what's going on, right? And of course, as you mentioned, China is in that race as well with India. Yeah, could you just expand more on the, the race for space? So, so historically, it was literally a race. It was the USSR and, and America racing to launch satellites, racing to launch human astronauts, racing to develop space stations or landing humans on the moon. And in one sense, the US won that space race in getting to the moon first. But in another sense, Russia won it by building the first substantial space station. 
And now there are many different nation states involved in space exploration. The, the US, Russia, the European Space Agency is the sort of conglomerate of nations across Europe, which are all collaborating together. China is making huge strides. India is making huge strides. And other nations are also launching their own satellites. And so space is offering us huge advantages in our modern world to do with the way we communicate with each other, with technologies like GPS, which curiously GPS isn't just about sat nav and not getting lost in your car or navigating your way through a strange city when you're visiting. GPS underlies a lot of financial activity nowadays. Anytime you go to a cash point to take out some money, GPS is being used as a timestamp for a lot of transactions across the internet and between banks, GPS is being used to validate and, and timestamps for that. So GPS is hugely important for the way the modern world works. And we also use space a lot for Earth observation in general, you know, for weather prediction, for disaster relief, for tracking the effects of, of climate change, for tracking hurricanes, or other natural disasters and trying to protect people. So space already offers us an enormous amount of benefit in your everyday life. It's just hidden behind the scenes. You don't often realize that you're using space and space hardware when you absolutely are. And that trend will definitely be continuing and expanding into the future. I'm Devin Mullins, an American University student interested in sustainable food systems. As Dr. Dartnell was saying earlier in the podcast, lowering our consumption is key to reducing climate change long term. I've been digging into this recently. While my consumption is not perfect, and I don't think there is a way for it to be perfect, I wanted to touch on some of the things that Dr. Dartnell mentioned, such as general consumption of consumer goods, flights and transportation, and meat and other food products. My goal here is to provide practical solutions to those of us who really want to make changes, but have truly no idea where to start. These are some of the things I have tried to implement in my own life to lower our overall consumption. With general consumption, I want to talk about two things, books and clothes. I'm a reader, I will read pretty much anything, and I do love a physical book. My absolute number one tip to lower consumption of books is your local library. Libraries aren't just for school kids, you have a local one and you are able to access it for free. You can check out physical books, ebooks, audiobooks, movies, CDs, and different equipment you may need. My library card? has allowed me to listen to or read dozens of books that I otherwise would have had to buy a physical copy of. They always have the new titles I'm looking for too. When I'm buying clothes, new or thrifted, I try to never make an impulsive purchase. To me, what this means is I don't buy something right after I see it. It has to be something that I've previously thought about needing in my wardrobe. I have to like the fit, the fabric, the color, all of it if I'm going to purchase it. The real key I have found is trying to imagine myself wearing that item with at least three different outfits in my wardrobe. I also try to never buy something that I can use only once, like a poorly made costume or specific party dress. Another important thing to me is food consumption and specifically meat. It can be really hard to take meat out of your diet if you are used to centering it in meals. So I wanted to give some meat alternatives that I've tried as someone who is not quite a vegetarian. Chickpeas are a classic. They are great in soups and stews, hummus, and my favorite, roasted. If you throw a can of chickpeas on a pan, cover them in your favorite spices and olive oil and roast them in your oven, you have a tasty and complete protein to go with a rice dish, salad, or literally anything else. Tofu is fantastic and can be used for more than you think. I love to make a tofu scramble and put it in a tortilla with whatever fixins I have in my home. It's so simple, just crumble tofu in your pan with oil or butter, add turmeric, salt, pepper, and garlic powder, and just a little bit of your favorite non-dairy milk, and voila! Tofu is also great dredged and breaded, just like chicken. Tempeh is also a complete protein that can be fried, skewered, roasted, and put in stews like tofu. It is usually made from fermented barley and is a great source of protein and it's great for your gut health. I've recently been so fixated on how to practically lower your consumption 
and not just saying we need to do something, but giving people the tools and the resources to know how to do it. So uh, I thank Dr. Dartnell for coming onto this podcast and pointing out the, the need to do that. And now back to the interview. Yes. And as you reflect on our current education models, what do you find is missing in terms of providing people that adaptive and intuitive intelligence going forward into the future? It seems that a lot of education at the moment is still just a little bit backwards and a little bit obsessed with training students to remember things, to remember facts and figures. And of course, knowledge is important. But in the modern world, when every one of us has got the sum total of human knowledge, you know, in our pockets as we walk around, when you've got a smartphone that connect to the internet or to Wikipedia or just search engineing, it's much less important what you can hold in your own head, what you can remember, because you can just look it up whenever it becomes important. What is so much more important now in education and for people's working lives is not whether you know something or not, because you can you can easily look that up or double check your memory, but it's how you interpret or analyze or synthesize that information. So I think a lot of what we ought to be seeing with the future of education will be along those lines, not exams where you're basically spending three hours checking a student's memory and how much they can write down in the handwriting on a piece of paper, but much, much more about assessing how well they've developed skills and techniques in rapidly understanding and interpreting and analyzing information and making decisions based on information. The internet has changed a huge amount about what is important in our lives and simplified many things that we would have been examined on otherwise. And, and of course, AI links into this as well. When it comes to assessing students in writing essays, it's now very hard to guard against plagiarism through students using an AI to write an essay because it's effectively undetectable at the moment. Well, I've spoken to professors, teachers who mm. were frightened. You know, Elon Musk has so many irons in the fire and whether he's developing robots and he could sell them to universities and effectively put teachers out of jobs. I think AI will become hugely beneficial for education in that you won't need to start thumbing to the index of a great big encyclopedia or textbook to look up the page number to turn to, to realize that's not actually quite what you were trying to find. You can just write your question into an AI search function and it will give you a paragraph or two of explanation pitched to your level of understanding, giving you the number of examples that, that you need to understand something. So AI can be an enormously useful tool for improving people's understanding and learning. I don't think we'll ever replace the role of human teachers because ultimately at the end of the day, we are all humans. We thrive on interaction and connections with each other. And AI will be a support tool. I don't think it will replace teaching as, as a profession. But as we mentioned already, there are negative aspects of AI when it comes to assessing students' work or, or cheating, as well as some of the un unintended consequences of AI, where if you don't know where that information has come from, how can you verify it or double check that it's factually accurate? There's been a number of, a lot of talk recently about AI hallucinating. If it doesn't know something, it just makes it up, but it makes it up very convincingly. So it can often be quite hard to double check the references and verify that information is, is true, which is one of the skills that I am involved in teaching my students at the moment, how to use AI creatively and constructively without overlying on it or straying into plagiarism and cheating within the education system. And I don't mean to bang on this so much, but I think we're drowning in data. I've read a statistic, it's something like, the amount of data that's being collected and stored is doubling every two years. So, you know, you can have all the information at your fingertips, but cutting through the clarity and making decisive decisions. I just came out of an interview at the Sciences Po about how there's so much effective scientific climate science research, but it doesn't make it to implementation. So we can have all this information, but how do you drive it forward? And I think that you need these human 
implementers and translators to get action on the ground. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that AI is very good at is churning through and processing vast amounts of data. I mean, assuming that you've got your machine learning system set up correctly and trained properly and you're using it in the way that it was intended to be used, machine learning and AI techniques are incredibly powerful in pulling out the important information in, in a sea of data. But to convert that information into new understanding, that is the role of humans in that, in that process. And it will remain the role of humans in understanding what is important and how to implement, as you say, that information once you've you know fished out of the sea of data. Yes. And if you're going back to being human, you've written about the fragility and strength of humans. You know, we don't have this massive computing skills that AI does. And just expand on that a little bit more, this uh, duality that has influenced the course of human civilization. Yeah. So the point I explore in the book is that humans have constraints and we, and we have our capabilities and that the human condition and therefore the whole course of, of world history has played out in the interplay between those constraints and, and capabilities. And talking about the constraints of our cognition, our memories are clearly limited. We can hold in our head any one time something like six or seven things. You can give someone six words or six numbers, but any more than that, and they, they start to forget the extra ones. So our sort of our RAM or our memory buffer is quite small. And we're also constrained in how quickly we can process information or how quickly we can make decisions. And on the whole, that doesn't really affect our everyday lives. You know, our, our cognition and our psychology developed under very different circumstances in East Africa and the sort of savannah and the grasslands. Our brain has evolved to make survival decisions quickly and on the whole, effectively. And there's a whole area of psychological neuroscience research to do with cognitive biases, how our brains, often unbeknownst to us, often sort of hidden behind the scenes, make assumptions or make rational errors in the decisions that, that they make. So there's a whole chapter in Being Human about how we have these fundamental flaws in our cognition, the sort of bugs in the programming code of, of our psychology, if you like, and how they come about and what might be the causes behind them but also what some of the effects of those have been through history, through these cognitive biases. And I talk about things like confirmation bias. We are very resistant to changing our minds, changing our opinion on something, even in the face of mounting evidence that shows we were wrong or we've made, we've come to the wrong conclusion. And I discuss in the book that Columbus, I argue, in being human is a very, very notable example in history of some suffering from confirmation bias, despite all the mounting evidence that Columbus had not reached the Far East, he hadn't reached India or China, which he was trying to do. He'd reached some strange new land that no one had anticipated. He simply disregarded or ignored all the evidence that suggested he was wrong, that he should have changed his opinion. And he clutched at straws and, and cherry-picked the few bits and pieces that could be reinterpreted to support his belief that he was in, in, in the Far East. And moving on, you know, so a couple of centuries from, from Columbus, it was exactly the same confirmation bias behind the assembly of, of the dossier of evidence that supposedly supported the existence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which then formed the basis of the Casas Belli to, to invade Iraq in, in, in the Gulf War. So, you know, separated by hundreds of years, those two history-defining events ultimately came down to the same cognitive bias, the confirmation bias in our psychology. And there's a number of these different cognitive biases sort of lurking in our psychology. And a great deal of research is going into not only the situations when they arise, but how we can try to 
circumvent them or avoid that the worst effects of such cognitive biases when we're making decisions, particularly in large groups as governments or as, as committees. Yes, indeed. And what are some of those tools or those strategies to interrogate what we take for granted? Well, ironically, even being aware of the existence of a lot of these cognitive biases is not enough to sort of vaccinate yourself against them, that they are so deeply entrenched in our psychology that even when you know that they exist, you can still very easily fall prey to them. So a lot of the solutions debugging or sort of debiasing our decisions are to create institutions or create systems of decision making that have built into them checks and balances. So for example, if a decision is being made by a group, often the first person to speak or the first opinion to be put forward has greater sway than one that comes up in the discussion later. It's, it's sort of like a, a flag being put into the ground and all other ideas are sort, of, are sort of considered in relation to that. So you don't want what happens to be the first idea to come up, which may well be from the most confident person in the room, which may well be a white middle-aged man, for example, to unnecessarily bias future discussion. So one of the strategies, for example, in group decision-making is to have ideas that are written down first or to have smaller groups discussing with each other before reporting back to the wider group, just to try to ensure a, a level of playing field. There's more uniformity in the ideas that are then put forward and discussed against each other and try to remove the, the, the biases in our brains that, for example, we put unnecessary weight to one of the early ideas or first idea that comes up. It's so interesting. I do think that's true. The one who shows this, it's not always the best idea, but they can present it. And we see this with politicians. But on yeah. the other hand of that, I've heard from a lot of different people. And the, the past president of the Academy of Motion Pictures, David Rubin, said to me, and a lot of different people say, I like to be the last person who speaks. I listen to everything and then I incorporate what everyone has said. And then, you know, we have a kind of... A, a assist. Yeah, exactly that. There, there's a great skill in generating ideas in the first place, but also there's a great skill in drawing together ideas and synthesizing them and coming up with something new out of those components, out of those parts. And, you know, that's what great leaders are, are very good at doing. Yeah. And so writing these books, what are your reflections? Because ultimately you're looking to the past. It just helps us inform our ideas on the future. And as you reflect on the future and education and the kind of world that we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think rather than picking out any particular area of knowledge or understanding, I think the most important thing for young people to nurture and to take care of and try to sort of emphasize in themselves is that sense of curiosity and the drive to find things out for themselves. I think it will become less important in the future about what you can remember and what you've learned because it will be so easy to look things up or have something like an AI, as we've discussed already, be able to provide that same information. But it's in finding things out for yourself that is that, you know, deep spark of, of human creativity, which gives us the innovation and all the sort of creativity and, and, and designs that, that we can come up with. So it's, I think that is something that you would absolutely want to try to continue nurturing in yourself. And what has given your life meaning? Well, that is a very deep and profound question. So for the books that I've written, I've always tried to write the book that I wanted to read myself, but then realized it didn't yet exist. And so I've very selfishly, very egotistically, I suppose, written a book for myself, first and foremost, but then always try to put on a hat of making it accessible. So it's not just you know a diary entry to myself, but is written for a general public, for a mass audience. So I try to take the reader along on that journey of discovery as, as I'm going on it. That's been the sort of guiding principle in the back of my mind through my creative work, through my book writing, my science communication. 
And very similarly within the research, it's, it's always about the curiosity. Science is just scratching a, a curiosity itch, trying to find something out, find, trying to find an answer to a question that no one yet knows what the answer is. And speaking of that, a journey of discovery, as you reflect on those teachers or collaborators that have been important to you, what had they passed on or how did they ignite that initial curiosity that maybe helped you decide that you would make a life in astrobiology? So I've got very distinct memories of being maybe 11, maybe 12 years old, living in my parents' house. And one of our neighbours, Molly, her son-in-law was a man called Neil Ausman, who at the time was very senior in NASA. And so whenever Neil came over with his English wife to England, they would visit her mother, my neighbour. And he was exceedingly generous with his time. And he'd always let me know when he was around for a day or two, visiting his mother-in-law. And he would let me go around and just pick his brains hours at a time about everything and anything under the sun or in the solar system about the different planets. And he sort of brought photographs for me that the NASA probes had taken and they had printed out. And it was the incredible generosity of his spirit and his time for, you know, some random 11-year-old just to sit down with me and sort of talk to me that really fired up my passion in science and then specifically space science as well. So, you know, one of my own drivers is effectively trying to feed that forward. And I spend a lot of time going into schools and doing talks and public events and working with sort of small problem-based learning workshops, groups of students to try to sort of, you know, pass on that which was given to me by, by Neil Ausman. And I'm sure that every single one of us has got someone like Neil in our own past, someone that took the time and had, had that generosity to just talk to you and nurture that interest that, that was just starting out as a seedling. Indeed. Teachers are so important. And I'm sure for your students and collaborators, you're hugely inspiring. Thank you for your openness and, and helping us understand how biology shaped world history and how Earth shaped human history by helping us understand ourselves, our Earth, what we value. We have a better understanding of where we're going and we can create positive futures. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thanks very much, Mia. Cheers. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Sophie Garnier and Devin Mullins. One Planet Podcast is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in the One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.